Hi, I'm Jason. I'm John. And I'm Marquis. And this is Just Just Getting Getting By. A free talk forum about the creative process and the wounds that hold us back from achieving our goals. Each week, building a roadmap through dialogue with working and struggling artists about how to better manifest a successful show business career. Hey, it's Jason. This week we spoke with Emma Koenig. I met Emma 12 years ago when we were both training at NYU's Experimental Theater Wing. Emma is a singer, actor, writer, published author, curator, and the truest definition of a Renaissance artist. You may recognize her last name because she is the younger sibling of Vampire Weekend's frontman Ezra Koenig. When I see show business families with multiple accomplished members, my assumption is often that one of them helped parlay the next into the industry using connections. That is not the case for Emma. She isn't only self-made, but the avenues of her accomplishments are paved with ingenuity and versatile creativity. Emma offered us step-by-step anecdotes to how her books have landed on shelves across the country and positioned her in writer's rooms on television shows. This is a phenomenal episode for those who are wondering, how do I even get started? Emma shares with us her artistic inspirations, how she's dealt with anxiety, and the critical responses she's received as a result of her feminist-minded body of work. She is a sweetheart with an edgy point of view. Here is our interview with Emma Koenig. So, um, let's see. Let's travel back 10 years. Uh, You and Mm. I are both doing our, what were they called, senior projects? Independent projects. Independent projects. Yes. Yes. Why did we, why did they call them that? Because we had to... Do them independently. independently, But not really. (laughs) There was help. There's a support system, so... But it was like, this the program that we went to, which we've talked about on a lot of these episodes so far, was called ETW, Experimental Theater Wing, and it wasn't just an acting program, it was very much generating your own work. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had our final pieces the same night, yeah. Um, mine was all over the place. It was like media and, and puppets and uh, no, there, there weren't puppets. And I was. A puppet. I think there was puppets. <laughs> Were there puppets? There I think been... Caitlin had a little someone on her hand. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But, there, but there was puppets so are in color. the eye of the beholder. Okay. Yeah. So. yeah. And yours was called. I don't want to hurt your feelings. So, okay. So it was not called what I thought it was. All right. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I remember. <laughs> now really I need well. to hear the alternate. No, we were wondering if it was fuck. I'm in my twenties oh, at that oh. point or if oh, it morphed no. into that. Yeah. So is that what morphed into? No, I okay. think of them as totally separate, but you know, created by the same person. So obvious overlap. Okay. Mm-hmm. So tell me how you got from where you were, um, graduating, making that piece to the next big thing that happened for you. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. I thought you were going to say it till now, and I was like, No, ah. no, like, ah. <laughs> like, I was like, It's being incremental okay. recording. So the next big thing, well, I used that piece to kind of enter into post-college creative life. I did it at a festival in New York the summer after, so I got to do a second production of it, which mm-hmm. was cool. Um... And then that was sort of the last thing I had planned <laughs> and creatively. And it wasn't for a few more years um, that I came up with my really big thing, which was fucking my 20s. But 
in the meantime, I was kind of trying to do a little bit of everything. Like I was taking improv classes and I was doing a lot of singing and songwriting um, and was writing, but not really in the way I am now. Mm-hmm. was always interested in writing but uh, and trying to audition, but like really had no idea how to do that, which... With all due respect to NYU, I think like that's <laughs> talked about with a lot of people. That's a big blind spot is having no pathway towards a professional career. No, I'm with you. It's yeah. why I shunned away from it. Yeah. I didn't know where to begin. Yeah, I think that's the general consensus. Like, I went to a private art school where they told us that we were being fully prepared for everything mm-hmm. that we needed after graduation and then it's like oh wait this is the real world and like I kind of need some guidance on how to do any of this completely (laughs) I mean I think I feel very taken care of artistically yeah and Mm -hmm. the craft yeah we honed honed the craft (laughs) yeah I mean I loved being in class I mean I wish I could be back in school in some ways Mm -hmm. um And I love the people that I met there and the experiences I had. So much of that has impacted who I am now as an artist. But just in terms of the logistical, how do you get an agent? How do you get to audition for stuff? What are the barriers? How do you even go into an audition? I kind of had this awakening, like probably a lot of us who are pursuing acting, where I was like, wow, I've really only been on a couple auditions a year for my whole life. Yeah. Even though I've been doing this since I was a kid, um, I haven't been doing it professionally. So you'd audition for the play that was available to you in your town or school, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you'd either get into it or you wouldn't. Or And, and so that was your audition experience. <laughs> and so then, not even taking into account how auditioning for your community theater is going to be different than auditioning for a TV show or whatever, but... Uh, which is important distinguishing factor, but also just the sheer hours logged is so few. And it wasn't until I got out of school where I realized, yeah, I really only auditioned for a couple things a year. Mm. And then you'd get into something and you'd do that play and there'd mm-hmm. be over. So I just had very limited audition experience, yeah. um, which is a whole pathway we can go down <laughs> perhaps. But I was working at this sandwich place in the East Village called Porchetta, which doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, it was very good. Um, Very expensive. Although, who knows what's expensive anymore. But it was like $14 sandwiches uh, that were made with this porchetta that took hours to prepare and all these, this special blend of spices. A lot of overhead. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I was the cashier there. And... uh, I was super depressed and anxious as most people were at that time in their 20s. And uh, I had had this idea for a while to do a zine called Fuck I'm in My 20s. And I never quite got it to the zine phase because I was like, I don't really know how you produce that. Do I have to go to Kinko's and spend all this money I don't have? It just seemed like there were barriers And for whatever reason, I was resistant to just doing it online Mm -hmm. initially. But I had spent a long time thinking about it. And essentially, the idea came from all I can think about at this point in my life is being at this point in my life. (laughs) Where it felt very different from being in high school. It wasn't like being 16. I was like, you know, the thing about being 16 is I felt like I was 
thinking about school. Yeah. And you were being 16. Yeah. Yeah. Living in that experience. Totally. So there was something about post-college where I was like, I feel like every time I go to a party, every time I run into someone on the street, I'm literally just talking about, I'm at this point in my life where it's very confusing and I'm anxious, which I had been anxious and confused previously, but that didn't seem to be all I had to offer conversationally. (laughs) Um, And so I just wanted to sort of exercise that. Maybe if I get it all down uh, and talk about it in a way that feels honest and funny, I could move on and have different things to discuss and experience in my life. Um, So that's, so then eventually I put it online as a Tumblr and that was like this huge creative professional shift in my life. So you were hesitant yes. to put something on the internet and then you decided I'm yes. going to do it and, yes. it and it worked out for you. And it worked out and it truly was so unexpected the life that it took on because very quickly people were responding to it and uh, reblogging on <laughs> Tumblr mm-hmm. and It's funny because now I feel like there's so much, not to say I started it all, (laughs) because I totally didn't, but uh, now I see so many pieces of art that are related to this time in your life. And it seems like there is more permission to discuss um, the kind of troubles that millennials face. The dirty little nuances. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's definitely something that every millennial has experienced and it's different than even like some like the generation before us and how they experience their 20s because we experience like our first taste of adulthood as the recession was happening Mm -hmm. and then it's just kind of like wait what's going on like is this the job I want to be doing everything is like something that we have to think about because it's like is this going to be the rest of our life or totally what (laughs) For listeners that weren't in Urban Outfitters a few years ago, can you tell us what exactly Fuck Em In My 20s turned into? So, originally on the Tumblr, it was all handwritten uh, posts and drawings about the joys and frustrations of being in your 20s, and it eventually became a book, which was sold uh, in particular at Urban Outfitters. Um, so that's kind of the life of that. It was really special. For a mo- special you. moment for me to walk into, you know, one in like Pennsylvania or something and be like, there she fucking is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's not, you know, it's, it's one thing we see our friends all the time on TV and in movies, but to see somebody on the shelf was a different thing. So I, I was really proud of you. Thank um, you. I'm also like following in your footsteps right now and like and so I'm in all and I might like even pick your brain at some point um I've been writing a book Uh about experiences that I had um in addiction yeah Um, yeah so uh you know it's 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 a different trajectory I never thought I'd be doing that um Mm -hmm. so what what was that for you to um to be on the page instead of in the room and on the stage. On the page instead of on the stage. Because <laughs> you're a, re- a really performative person. In conversation, mm-hmm. you're, you engage everybody. Mm-hmm. I remember coming to parties at your house. Yeah. And like your greeting. It wasn't fake, but it was, it was, a, it was also a performance. It was uh-huh. just like, it was huge and it was so welcome. It was just like, oh, I have arrived. You were just like, hey, how's it going? Like, it was just, it was enormous. And and I love, and I've always loved that about you. You've stood out in my mind. I have the carbon uh, footprint of your, of 
your greeting um, forever in my mind. Well, that's it's funny because I don't feel big, but mm-hmm. then sometimes when I see like footage of myself or something, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> don't even look human. But that's just like uh, yesterday I was at a dinner where um, a friend of ours sent everyone at the dinner an inappropriate photo was like, didn't tell us what it was going to be, but was like, I'm going to send you a strange photo. I want everyone to turn their phones over. And one by one, I want to film your reactions to getting the photo. Yes. Um, and, uh, when I looked at the photo, which I'll tell you, I'll tell you off air because I don't want to start, but, um, uh, a scandalous photo, uh, in my head, I was just like, huh, look at that. But when I saw the video of it, it was a huge reaction. It was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I was like, what feels small to me is enormous yeah, on the scale that. of human reaction. Um, but in terms of stage to page, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think what a lot of us in school, and maybe if I could even guess generation generationally, uh, have in common is this interest in multiple disciplines at once. So I think, which is a blessing and a curse. Um, And so I think since I was a kid, I really loved to sing and act and dance and write and uh, draw. And so I was like interested in a lot of stuff and had tried to uh, focus on one. And I think that's kind of been a, a theme for better or worse in my life is trying to zero in on one mm-hmm. and then getting antsy or sad about neglecting others. Yeah. Um, but I had always been interested in drawing. I didn't think I was particularly good at it, but I thought I was fine at it. And it didn't really matter for what the project was because I was like, this isn't about producing great artwork visually. It's about trying to translate a feeling. Um, and I think I have enough, even if you're using stick figures, I think I can still translate the feeling. Um, and also part of the reason that it was hand drawn was because I, the idea of doing anything with graphic design felt like I would have to learn a totally new skill set. And so I was like, well, I can't do that. So I'll just have to do it by hand. I wouldn't know how to, if, even if it was only text, I was like, I don't know if I could make it look the way I wanted to. Um, and so it felt like a natural offshoot of performing mm. that it was just like I'm translating an emotion. Yeah. I just happen to be doing it in a different form. Cool. Love it. So I, now I need to talk about who's on your shirt here. So oh, you're yeah. wearing a, sh- a black shirt. It's got, is that Tina Turner, Yoko Ono, Nico, so, John Cameron Mitchell as Hedvig? Yes. Yeah, so uh, who else? There's... A song in Hedwig and the Angry Inch called Midnight Radio, where oh, he yeah. references oh, all man. these women and then ends with, and me. Oh, Kind yes. of talking about all the people that came before who are, like, inspirations. Um, and I, I love this shirt. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Who are your inspirations? Well, I mean, John Cameron Mitchell is one of them, for mm-hmm. sure. I think at various points in my life, I have, I don't even know if I become obsessed, that seems like an extreme word, but I become highly interested (laughs) in different people. And when I was a kid, it was like Bernadette Peters Mm -hmm. in the PBS Into the Woods uh, (laughs) 
that my parents had taped on VHS. And we had also taped this other uh, PBS um, airing of the Mark Morris dance company, The Hard Nut. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. It's like no. a reimagining of the Nutcracker. I'm sure it's on YouTube, though. We can look this Yeah, up. probably. Okay. And those two things, uh, probably more so Into the Woods, but, like, I really was into them as a kid. And then I remember when I got into NYU, there was a lot of um, early, like, MySpace meetups and uh-huh. stuff. And I met up with this guy who lived in Virginia and we, like, just became friends, like, through MySpace. I slept over at his house in Virginia when I was, like, a senior in high school. Oh, wow. And he showed me this movie, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And, nice. I, and I remember him explaining to me, like, okay, this is what the origin of Love Song is about. And it just really touched me. And then as I started to get um, more into... Hedwig and John Cameron Mitchell I was like wait a minute okay so this is like a really cool piece with really amazing songs but also just like I was so interested in how he made it that he started out with a character and he was performing at like clubs and and, like airports yeah and he was just like came up with this like history about this character he had invented and then was writing music with his friend Steven it just felt so organic and similar to the ETW and long you know, yeah. he, it was not something that, ha- it was not an overnight sensation. He did right. not go the traditional route and he did not stop with any barriers that came up. It was like, oh, we can't perform, oh, we can't book a place. We'll find a place. Right. And that's like that. And he, I think that, um, I, I knew him for a few years back in New York and, mm-hmm. and there's something that he, uh, received from, from that, which is just an incredible decisiveness um, and he makes a decision like faster and easier than anybody I've ever met. Um, and I think that comes from seeing a success happen from being relentless, you know, mm-hmm. uh, being able to make a decision that fast is like when you've not been able to be the decision maker for so long. Yeah. Um, and, and, but he, he didn't stop. That's, that's, it's admirable. Yeah. He's definitely really. an inspiration. It's a very good, good shirt. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so with that, with John Cameron Mitchell being an inspiration, mm-hmm. how has that come into your own work? Was well, that ever a thought when you started to do the the Tumblr? Well, probably couldn't trace like an exact mm-hmm. line uh, from John Cameron Mitchell, but definitely, you know, incredible pieces by inspirational people all like you soak up. Right. these years and then like make you feel like maybe you could do something on your own um <laughs> and uh yeah so I but I really think the what came of fucking my 20s was so I was so unprepared for it um what came well just that one it being a book mm-hmm. or or to even begin with people looking at it yeah. is like the first right. surprise yeah how was that like did you just create the tumblr and it was like you put up your first post and then it was wildfire or was there like some marketing or some kind of push that there you was did? no push i i mean i remember i put up i think two or three drawings and then i remember posting on Facebook with a link to it, and I said, it begins, dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. That's 
That's basically as much... A little suspense. <laughs> that always does the trick. You gotta keep them guessing. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think at that point, people weren't even sure if it was something I made or if I was just like, oh, this is something I like that started. Um, and I liked being a little anonymous. I didn't have my name mm-hmm. on it or anything. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was definitely weird adjusting to from like the incubator of college life and being able to fail and be encouraged to try things and be really vulnerable and then to just post something on the internet and be like oh people I don't know are seeing this and having opinions and they're not all good and it's very I don't know if I have it organically in me to like be able to handle that I yep. think I've gotten better at it, but just immediately I was like, oh, this is very weird to have a lot of people <laughs> that I don't know engaging with this. What was that transition from Tumblr to publication? Like, did you approach publishing houses? Did someone approach you? How did that all work? Well, it had been up for a few weeks, and I think maybe there were some little uh, blogs and stuff that had picked up on it and were posting about it. Mm-hmm. And I was very vigilant in the beginning about tracking how many people were looking at it. Like I had Google Analytics on it. Mm-hmm. And so I could see, okay, this many people have looked at it um, and this is how they got there. It was this mm-hmm. referral site that brought them. Mm-hmm. And not that I really used that information to change anything, but I was just <laughs> like, there's something comforting about like seeing how it was happening that it wasn't like this mystery how are people finding this it was like oh they this person posted about it and a lot of people visited this site and you know just to give it some um like order in my mind of how it was progressing right and I was also really careful in watching who was following it on tumblr like in the beginning, anytime I got a new follower, I was like, oh my God, someone's following me. So I would look who it was. And every once in a while, I would see someone who maybe wrote for a website or a magazine or something. And I thought, oh, maybe I could have a chance at doing something like that. So maybe a month or so in, I decided to create an email account for it because I thought maybe I could write for a website, get a job through this, which I never expected initially. And eventually, about six weeks in, I got an email from an editor at Chronicle Books in San Francisco, and she was like, do you think, have you ever thought about this being a book? Which I had not. (laughs) (laughs) And I was very excited, and I remember calling my parents, and I was like, someone thinks this could be a book, and my dad being like, okay, that's exciting, but you really have to temper your expectations and not get all worked up that this is going to happen. So I think immediately brought down to earth a little bit of like, right, just because someone emailed me doesn't mean anything. But as it turned out, it doesn't mean nothing. (laughs) It doesn't mean nothing. So I kept talking to this woman, Emily, and about what my ideas were, if it were to be a book. And eventually I was offered a book deal. So it was very fast and very emotionally overwhelming. Wow. And I remember finding out, I knew there was a day where I was supposed to find out. And I was at work wrapping up the sandwiches, mm-hmm. kept checking my email. <laughs> Giving so, the change to the customer. <laughs> so anxious. And I had scheduled a haircut 
after work and I was like, either this is going to be a celebratory haircut or um, it will be something to distract me (laughs) from the bad news. And I go through the haircut, still haven't heard anything. And I'm like telling the hairdresser about it. Like, I'm waiting to find out if I'm going to get to make this book. And then I was walking down Astor Place and I checked my email and I saw that I got the offer. And I just called my mom and I was crying. And I was like, I can't believe, it's just the craziest moment. Yeah. And I ran past, I was like ran home and I ran past where the hairdresser was. And I like opened the door and I was like, I, I got, got it. it. <laughs> She's like, okay, cool. She's like, I'm with someone right now. Get out. Like, I don't, Get out. She's like, I have no investment in this. But I, but I just wanted to like tell this person. <laughs> You're like, you've been with me on the journey. Right. It's like as soon as I shut the door, she's like, that was weird. Um, (laughs) But yeah. Amazing. So then, so then it's a book. Right. Were you like, okay, what's, can we make this into a film, a TV show, a play or what? Was there like a. Well, I, I think as far as a first book goes Mm -hmm. and. I mean, I think everything about it, I've now come to see how, I mean, I knew I was very lucky at the time, but just uh, how strange it all fell into place, how quickly, because even working on the book, I think I turned in my first um, version of it six months later, and it came out the following year. So it was very, very fast, which of course doing drawings versus writing prose and writing an entire novel is a whole different experience. Mm -hmm. But now that I've dipped my toes in the publishing world waters over the past seven years, I realize it's very slow Mm -hmm. as a lot of things in the arts. But, uh, this just happened to be everything about it was fast, getting the deal, doing the work, it coming out. And in the contract for the book, there is a line that talks about film and TV rights. And it was literally that that made me be like, oh, maybe this could be a TV show. Would you have had rights to? Yes. So yeah. I had the rights. Uh-huh. Did you go get a literary agent when you got the book deal? Like, yes. Then uh, I had to get an agent, which, you know, whenever we talk about agents for any uh, aspect of the arts, um, it's always the catch-22 conversation of, how do you get an agent if you haven't gotten work and how do you get work without an agent? Mm-hmm. Right. And so in this case, I happened to get this book deal before I had an agent. So that helped me get an agent. I don't think if I had done it the alternate way, I would have been able to, although maybe now that there are a lot more books that have a similar um, path of starting as internet projects and then mm-hmm. doing books, maybe I would have a better chance now. But I feel like in 2011, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it felt like too many barriers to just try to, and also I wasn't even pursuing writing books. Right. (laughs) Um, so then I essentially knew I wanted to come try to make it a TV show, come to Mm -hmm. LA. So that's when the move happened. Yes. So what year was that? That was still in 2011 or the following year? That was 2012. 2012 you got here and then how was the transition well it was very funny because my thought was I'll come to LA for a month Mm -hmm. meet some people Mm -hmm. 
and then I'll go back. And at that time, I was living in New Jersey with my parents. Um, and so I had just figured out a situation of subletting somewhere for a month, renting a car for a month. I also barely knew how to drive, so I was really scared. Um, <laughs> and I think at that time, I had gotten an agent, like an entertainment agent, through my literary agent. Um, and so I came with that and I was like, oh yeah, CAA will just send me on some meetings, which I got here and literally nothing happened for a month. Mm -hmm. And so I was so impatient. Um, and I think my naivete about how any of it worked actually worked to my advantage because now I know things take a really long time. And so if someone was like, oh, uh, this project is probably going to take years to get off the ground, I think my reaction now would be like, yeah, that sounds about right. Mm -hmm. But then I was like, I've been here a month and nothing has happened. This is insane. So I was like, I have to take action. And I started writing a script, not really knowing how to write a script. And I realized I have to stay here longer. Mm -hmm. And I happened to meet someone the first day I came to LA who I began to date and in that first month we were like the first day <laughs> yeah we had met on I guess we first communicated on Twitter and then he lived in LA and I knew I was about to come for a few weeks so I said oh we should hang out when I'm in LA and then the first day I got here I was like well I don't know anybody I should just <laughs> hang out with that guy, guy. on the <laughs> internet yeah <laughs> and we and we started dating and but in a way where we didn't really know what it was going to be because I thought I was about to go back to the East Coast. And then really I owe him a lot because he was like, you can live with me. Mm. And I lived with him and his two roommates for about a year after that. And uh, so I didn't have to worry about, oh no, now I have to find a place. It was just... And I, you know, was lucky that I met someone that I fell in love with and uh, who was also in the arts and, like, had similar interests to me. And Are you still together? We're not still together. Okay. Still um, friends? Yeah, friendly. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, so I ended up staying. And I wonder a lot if we hadn't been together how my path might have been different in terms of staying in L.A. Would I have felt like it was too overwhelming? Mm. Um, cause then at that point I didn't even have a car either. Yeah. So I was just, <laughs> which, that's, which is not easy to do in LA. No. Well, and that's the thing I feel like for a lot of people who move to LA specifically from the East coast may get here and then things may not be moving as quickly as we're hoping and building friend groups is kind of weird Everything is spaced out. You yes. kind of need to drive everywhere. So it's like that first year in LA, everyone always says like, oh, that's going to be the toughest year you ever have here mm -hmm. because it's lonely or whatever. So stepping into something like that, I'm sure it made that ride, that transition so much oh, more yeah. smooth. Oh, yeah. Just even if you take away all of the emotional support and like being in a relationship and how that can make you feel safe, just the fact that I was living with someone who had been in LA for a few years already mm -hmm. just totally made me feel 
like I could take a breath and not be so anxious. I still was very anxious. <laughs> but um, so I stayed out here and I met with a ton of production companies about the fuck in my 20s idea that would be based on post-college years in New York. Mm-hmm. And I think it was around then that girls came out. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think people were looking for their version of girls. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this is just pure luck. I think about this all the time. If it had been any other year, my show might not have sold. because that, And that's just a reminder that it kind of has nothing to do with you or the project sometimes, most of the time. It's just a confluence of factors. So I came out here, all these production companies are saying no, Mm -hmm. and then finally I meet with one that wants to work with me. And so we pitched the show to NBC Mm -hmm. um, because they had a first look deal at NBC, Mm -hmm. and NBC said yes. So then didn't pitch anywhere else and so it was super exciting and once again I didn't realize until now that I've been here a few years oh yeah that doesn't just happen all the time (laughs) um but I was like yeah I just I came out here I read some books about tv writing I read a lot of scripts I watched a lot of tv I met with people and I figured it out and I think all of that stuff definitely helped me but that is not why it sold or that you could do all those things and it could still not work out. And ultimately I wrote the pilot with a showrunner and then they never made it, which is pretty common. Yeah. Very common. Yes. Yeah. We've, we've heard, we've heard from some other people we've talked to, we've, we've heard similar stories mm-hmm. and uh, we've concluded that it is certainly not defeat. No, I think it's truly, a badge of honor to get to any step. Right. Yeah, because there's a gatekeeper and so many things that have to happen just to get to what may seem like the first step of even getting an agent, you know? Yes. It's like you said, like not having the work under your belt Mm -hmm. or not having the agent can close doors for you. But I think your story really shares that idea that you have to produce what it is that you want to do. Mm -hmm. Like you have Mm -hmm. to be creating the work that you want to be seen in. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing that happens in LA is a lot of people move here and they're like, Oh, I need to like make it happen. I need to go in auditions and you're auditioning for roles that may not be aligned with what it is that you want to do, but it's just like, Oh, this is an opportunity. And it's like luck, timing, and your faith in the project is definitely something that like pushes it forward. Totally. And I mean, I think I have a lot of admiration for actors um, because who knows what will happen for the rest of my life in terms of acting. I think I eventually do want to go back to it. Mm-hmm. But when I first came to L.A., I felt so ill-prepared as an actor, despite mm-hmm. having perhaps the most training in that field. Right. Um, and I think I realized my ideas about acting and what I thought was fun about it don't exactly translate to working in film and TV. And I think I have this one story that I feel like really sums up my disconnect with the industry, which is I went on an audition for a pilot and the character was described as 
you know, a guy's girl. She's one of the guys. <laughs> and, uh, like, she's, like, cracking dirty jokes. She, like, doesn't give a shit, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I approached that character the way I would if I got that in the scene in class. And I didn't wear any makeup, and I was wearing, like, jeans and a t-shirt. And I got there, and every girl had makeup, and their hair was straightened, and they were wearing heels. And I was like, oh, you still have to be hot. It was just, it was just like this weird, it dawned on me. I was like, oh, it's not, it's not actually what a real one of the guys would be like. It's a hot girl who hangs out with a group of guys and cracks jokes. And that's totally fine as a character or whatever, or a person, whatever. But I was just like, oh, I'm like coming from this like gritty, realistic, like what would this person, how would this person feel to have no female friends? And and I was like, it's not even about that. It's about, can you show up and look good on camera? That's number one. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I felt like that was a shock to me, even though, of course I knew my whole life that being an actor is about what you look like. Yeah. But it was But it somehow was different. when we go through this institution and we're told it's not, it's about yeah. all this deeper stuff, we forget somehow yeah. like the most basic things we know about the industry. Like, right. I feel like that's one thing that LA puts like, at the forefront. Oh, yeah. It's like, what do you look like? Who are you marketing to? Are you the relatable friend? Are you the, like, token gay friend? Or, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's all of these archetypes that they're trying to fill. And that's what comes first. Everything else, it's like, your training is secondary. They've found people, like, I, who was it? Um, Nick Zano, mm-hmm. who used to have a show on, on the CW way back in the day. They found him at a shoe store uh-huh. in Santa Monica. And they were just like, <laughs> you're hot. Let's put you on TV. You know? Yeah. And not every hot person can do, I mean, I think it's still really right. hard. <laughs> yes. Um, in a lot of cases, but yeah, that, that just like your looks being feeling like 90% of getting the job was an overwhelming crushing feeling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I just felt like I can't compete with that, which I think is part of the reason that I have leaned on writing more because it doesn't require me to look a particular way. Um, so I don't want to focus on this that much, sure. but I do want to ask about it because you have a famous brother. Mm-hmm. Um, how has that experience been as an artist that also sings, um, but you also have a million other passions. How has it been to have somebody that you're... And you're really close with him, too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me what that experience has been like for you. Well, I think whenever I think about this part of my life, of having my brother being in Vampire Weekend, I think I would normally say it's like 95% very amazing and inspiring to see someone just achieve what they want and to be really talented like he's truly so talented so smart so funny he's so good at so many things like I feel like if he wasn't a musician he could be a visual artist he could be a writer he could do a million things um and so I've always looked up to him since I was a kid is it just the two of you it's just the two of us and he's four years older than me so I always felt like 
I had big shoes to fill, especially going into high school where I feel like a lot of younger siblings experience this of, oh, you're Ezra's sister. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we expect good things (laughs) from you. And that never went away. (laughs) Right. So in some ways, nothing's changed from like having the the AP English teacher be like, you know, we expect greatness from you (laughs) given to just like your brother is a really successful artist. It kind of feels exactly the same. (laughs) Um, And I would say that 5% is just like my human insecurity that I think most people have to some degree. And I think it's so hard not to compare yourself to people and in particular your sibling. I, I don't know why that is because it's like why would I look at this relationship so much differently than any others in terms of comparison? Um, Because I don't think you should compare yourself to anybody, ideally. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there is just something maybe innate that, like, you compare yourself to family members. Um, And I think in terms of my own interests in singing and music, it has been, like, a evolution of my feelings about it because I think in some ways when I was younger I felt like more insecure about it when I was in college because I felt like I really have to compartmentalize in order to write a song for a class that I'm going to sing plunking out notes on the piano when my brother is like this really accomplished musician and singer um And yeah, I think that's just something that everyone I know who is an artist has some version of that, whether, Mm -hmm. and I don't think like my insecurities as an artist only surround my brother. I think that's like one of a million things, (laughs) but, but that's definitely just something everyone is working on is some version of that, of just slightly irrational but understandable comparisons and insecurities and how great is it uh this is actually not a question this is an observation um how great it is uh that you were able to extract from him the inspiration um that like oh he's making it and so can i but you didn't ever have to lean on him uh and then and you see that you see that in hollywood it's like some folks that have agents you know maybe they have famous relatives, mm-hmm. um, and then that's how that happened. We don't hear it, but it's totally. how it happened. Um, and it's not how it happened for you. That's um, yeah. I'm, I'm really moved mm-hmm. by that. You were able to to hone uh, the creative spirit that is in your family, in your community, and do it your own way. Mm-hmm. Very admirable. Well, Thank and you. it goes to show that everyone has their audience, and it's more so about putting your work out there and, mm-hmm. and people being able to hear or see it and share it with others and especially when it comes to music it's like we're sending out vibrations Mm -hmm. so getting people to feel that vibe that you're putting out is always something that we kind of struggle with and like oh are people gonna like this regardless of what the work is that you're putting out Mm -hmm. and I think having someone so close to you who has achieved success doing that it does give you the inspiration to be like oh yeah Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first graduated and I guess I had heard similar sentiments before of just anytime I would tell people I was an actor and, you know, they roll their eyes essentially. Oh, she's an actor. (laughs) And, um, and I remember feeling 
Well, because people would say, you know, you know how hard it is, right? And I was like, oh, really? Like, I had no idea. <laughs> but, um, but just there was a, a comfort in knowing that Ezra had, quote unquote, made it mm-hmm. in a different field. But just thinking, I know it all feels really impossible, but it, sometimes it works out. And that just gave me a little hope. And I think that he, I also really like what he creates which makes it easy to be inspired. I think I wonder what it would be like if his band was something that I just like never really got into yeah. how that would impact me. <laughs> yeah, um, but I genuinely love it. And so uh, it's exciting to like, and they just had a new album come out. So it's like, it's always exciting to see the new things that he creates. For sure. Uh, so you did fuck him in my twenties and you stuck with publishing, but you did something different after that, right? Mm -hmm. It was a a collection of essays. Yes. Well, so in between I was doing a variety of things. I did a guided journal version of fuck him in my twenties, which had prompts for people to write and draw their own stuff. And I was a cartoonist for the times UK. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. And doing fuck him in my twenties style drawings and uh, and then I was writing on for TV shows, and but also I feel like you know having this period of really not knowing what I wanted to be doing, um, because I think fucking my twenties just like led me down this path that I hadn't anticipated, and then I had to analyze okay what do I really want to be doing, mm-hmm. and that's something I'm still figuring out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, But about four years ago, I had an idea for another project, which has become a kind of, I'm thinking of my career in two phases of the fuck I'm in my twenties phase and the moan phase. Um, because both of them I worked on for moan is the collection of essays. Yes. Both of them I worked on for years. So it's like fuck in my twenties was probably like four or five years of my life and moan has been about four years. Um, so what it is for the listeners who don't know is it's a collection of anonymous essays by women about female orgasm that I curated. And it also started as a Tumblr because I knew how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that path a little bit and the Tumblr was called how to make me come. Mm. A little we toned it sassier. Down. Yeah. We toned it down for Sassy. the Toned it down the for shelves. the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it could be on the shelves. But, yeah. So fun. Yeah, I remember when we met at that brunch, that's yes. what you were working, working on. on. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. So that's still going? Well, huh. so the blog version of it started about four years ago. Mm-hmm. The book version came out about a year ago, May 12th, uh, 2018. And now, uh, I've also been working on developing it as a TV idea. Oh, so I'm kind of following my own footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> well, you set up yeah. a good structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, because yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because you're creating something where you can build the audience and then create a tangible product that they can purchase and Mm -hmm. then give them the content they can consume visually afterwards. Totally. And I I think for me, what both these projects have in common is that I cared enough 
about the idea behind them that it could sustain working on them for years. Right. Mm, Because I think at various points I've really tried to maybe answer the marketplace of the entertainment industry and be like, well, what are people looking for? And how can I alter my voice to get a job or to get noticed or whatever? Right. Um, And I've always really struggled with that because I think my strength is in working on something for a really long time that I can be the energizer bunny about something I give a shit about. Yeah. So these, both these projects, it's like, okay, I've had two ideas in about eight years that I could work on for a really long time and to not beat myself up for not having more ideas constantly. Mm-hmm. But if I really care, I, I can, you know, spend hours and hours working on it. Right. No, we're here for quality. Not yeah. quality. <laughs> Without breaking anonymity, how did you go about finding uh, those who contributed? So I wrote a sort of feminist manifesto and I sent it to about 200 women asking them for their stories and giving them this prompt, which was if you could write an essay entitled how to make me come and give it to a past, present or future sexual partner, what would you want them to know free of judgment or repercussion? And if people didn't want to write that specifically, I just said, whatever this brings up for you about orgasm sexuality and and if you won't know anybody who wants to write this then forward it to them so it was sort of became this feminist phone tree like how many did you read a lot a lot (laughs) but it was really hard when it came to choosing which ones were going to go into the book it was really difficult because I feel like the power of the essays is all of them at once mm-hmm. obviously there are ones that will speak to you in particular but just for me it was the weight of all of these people's experiences right next to each other um yeah how often do you see your family a lot i <laughs> my brother lives in la so i see him a lot and i facetime with my parents every morning oh, this is so cute <laughs> I mean, even if I, like, this morning, I was in a rush, so I talked to my mom for 10 minutes, and then just before I came here, I talked to my dad for a few minutes. I really don't know what I would do without FaceTime. Have you gotten better at driving? Oh my god, I'm so good now. (laughs) I I honestly feel of everything that has happened in my life, learning to drive is, like, one of the things I'm proudest of, because I I was so scared. And I, I had had nightmares for years, no joke. And I was like in there because I had gotten into a very minor accident when I was a teenager. Didn't drive for six years after that and lived in New York. And I had so much anxiety about it and like would talk about it in therapy for years. So just... <laughs> you had <laughs> nightmares about driving? Yeah, I would always have a dream, this recurring nightmare that I would be stealing a car. Ooh. And I was driving it and then realized, oh, fuck, I have to get the car back before someone notices. And there would be a lot of obstacles. Um, Uh, Sounds like a video game. Yeah. No no fun. 
I had a nightmare last night that I was dating Lena Dunham, uh, which <laughs> I, she shows up in a lot of my dreams. Um, and Interesting. Has for, she was for many years, and now um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez shows up in them instead. She's, like, replaced Lena Dunham somehow. Uh, but last <laughs> night, Lena Dunham and I were in a relationship, and she was, like, really raggedy and, like, looked, like, really homely. And we were at, like, living on some barn, some uh, like, some farm somewhere, and her assistant came in and was telling her that that she um, needed to keep down the volume when it, when she was shooting the dinosaur production scene last night in the barn. And I knew somehow that he was telling her that this was like all a euphemism for like her cheating on me. Wow. Yeah, it was really trippy. <laughs> I woke up really sad this morning. That, that's a lot to take in. Right. What a unique dream. I just wanted to throw that out there. I didn't get it off my chest. <laughs> I'm glad this is a safe space to right. share these kinds of things. Do you do anything to um, center yourself? Is it, I, I'm all, this is, this is like a, a selfish question. Like no. I'm looking for advice. <laughs> well, the way that I think about it is you have to hop from lily pad to lily pad of things that calm you down. And so if you go a few days without doing, or for me personally, at least if I go a few days and I haven't gone to work out or tried to meditate or had a serious deep conversation with a friend or like talk to my parents or something, I can feel the anxiety starting to bubble up. And so I just think of it as you need to have things that calm you down to jump to and they can't be too far apart from each other. You can't like meditate once a week and uh, although that's a good starting point, but uh, hope that if that's the only thing that you've adjusted about your lifestyle, everything will fall into place. I think you have to have these little moments, even if it's just drinking tea in silence in your apartment, just to calm yourself down. Because I constantly am looking for ways I need advice too I'm looking for ways to calm myself down um so yeah try to just I think of it as connecting with other people taking moments of solitude and doing something physical mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what were some of the tv shows you wrote for so I wrote for a romantic comedy on ABC called Manhattan Love Story oh okay and, oh, I remember hearing yeah. about that show. <laughs> and uh, then I wrote... Was for- there another NYU writer in that writer room? Jack Moore. Jack Moore. I thought that's Jack why, Moore. That's we, why. <laughs> we recorded an uh, episode with Jack Moore. Yeah, so we... And we actually shared an office. <laughs> so fun. <laughs> yeah, so... And we lived... At that time, we realized we lived across the street from each other in LA. So very... Wow. What a weird synchronicity. Yeah. Um, and then I wrote on this show called Single by 30, which is also a romantic comedy on YouTube Red. And then I wrote for like a, another digital show, you know. So mm-hmm. I've kind of been in a, in a place where I'm trying to get back into TV, like real TV, quote unquote, that's not digital. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also see that digital is kind of, the path now Mm -hmm. and I think uh a lot about this speech that I saw Joe Swanberg give not in person I watched on YouTube (laughs) but um (laughs) but where he was talking about his career which I think is really fascinating of making all these like super indie movies um like every single year Mm -hmm. uh 
and he talked about video on demand uh, being this revolutionary thing, and it was offered to him to, for one of his movies to be released on demand. And everyone was kind of like, what? What is that? Who's going to watch that? And then it ended up being a huge thing. And that's the same thing that happened with DVDs and yeah. stuff. So I'm trying to uh, let go of my maybe snobbiness. Prejudice. <laughs> Prejudice. Mm -hmm. and, but I think it's, it's less about being snobby and it's more about my fear of what the future holds and wanting to make the right choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and not knowing what that is. You're a little bit of a perfectionist, right? In some ways, I think maybe less a perfectionist, more particular and hard on myself. <laughs> but maybe that's what being a perfectionist is. Like, like, so, like you keep a controlled environment, no? Uh, I'm just... I'm, in this some is, ways. And I'm speaking from when I knew you before. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Yeah. I just remember something like somebody dropped out of my final piece yeah and and i was like uh you were like how are you going to do this yeah. like uh, and it was just like like you were like you know i would i would need to restructure like yeah, you, yeah. you had like a very and i was just like i guess i'll just do it without them and uh -huh. you were like mm -mm. <laughs> i don't know about that girl <laughs> well i think i you know i have learned that there are certain ways in which i work where i'm very particular i'm very sure of myself and then others where I really am more open and have no idea and want to put my trust in other people to help me figure it out. But I think when I'm, when I have a vision, I want to stick to it as much as I can. That's admirable. It is, but I think sometimes it's a fault because you ha I'm trying to get better at uh, not being so resistant to making adjustments. Yeah. You have to. Absolutely. Are you okay with being just a writer? Do you have the bug? Do you want to get back into acting class, start auditioning I, again? I do have the bug. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that writing has been a very comforting path because it's something that you can do without anyone's help or permission. And acting, as yeah. much as you could spend hours in your room rehearsing monologues, uh, it's not the same mm -hmm. as as being able to write and like further something, uh, further a project for yourself. And I think with all of my fears and inadequacies as an auditioner when I first came out here and when I first graduated from college, in a weird way, I'm kind of in the same place because I haven't been acting this whole time. So I'm kind of back where I started, but with a different mindset because now I have attached less to it mm -hmm. even though I'm still really interested in it and hope ultimately to do something with acting again I think there's something about acting in particular that I had wanted to do my entire life since I was a kid and so then it was almost like I wanted it too much and it was too scary. Right. Mm -hmm. Too precious. It now you have a precious. lot of things going for you, yeah. so you're not going to take it so personally if one role right. isn't, if you don't get one audition or right. all these things. And I think I'm more chill about failing now yeah. of just, yeah, okay, that's part of it. Like, right. I'm going to have bad experiences. I feel the, the gift of getting older is going through things that really upset you and 
surviving mm-hmm. and thriving even. <laughs> um, yes. Because I even feel that way about relationships. It's like once you've had your heart broken once, for me, it's always felt like, oh, and I and we all got through it. Yeah. And right. so if it ever happens again, like God forbid, I'll get through it again. Right. And uh, I feel like that applies as an artist as well. Just you've had your upsetting moments as an artist and we all do. That's part of it. And we've all had days after that where we're laughing and still having good ideas and still like dreaming about new things. So yeah. I feel in a better place now than when I first graduated. That's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. the failure does not define you. It's the resilience yeah. and the persistence to keep mm-hmm. going and to make something new that will end up defining you. I have one final curious question. Okay. Did you have any straight men that read Moan that reached out to you? Yes. In positive, negative? Mostly positive. I had braced myself for many negative reactions. (laughs) And I think the probably unfortunate thing or or difficult thing about doing really personal, meaningful art, for me at least, is my emotional state is so wrapped up in it. I was so anxious for so much of my creative process, especially because I'm handling people's really vulnerable stories that they're entrusting me with. Um, So I wanted to do it right. Uh, And... I was definitely nervous. There was going to be some men's rights activist types hitting me up. (laughs) What Um, are those ones called that are pissed off that they don't get any? Incels. Yeah, lunatics. And and also just, which is, you know, I could talk for a whole hour about uh, just being a woman on the internet and how that, I feel like, tripped me up at various points in terms of, is anything even worth pursuing if you have to deal with this bullshit all the time? Right of just shitty people online. Um, But mostly I found the reaction to be positive and for men not only to reach out and say, wow, I had no idea. This was, I've learned so much, but also to talk about relating to the stories, Uh which I I didn't totally expect. I mean, I knew kind of the joke about this project focusing on the female experience is that people have said to me, oh, if you did this about male orgasm, it would be like a page. <laughs> like, how to achieve a male orgasm. But, but I, I actually don't think that's true because even though maybe on an anatomical level it may be easier for a, um, someone with a penis to have an orgasm, I think obviously not everyone's sexual experience is the same. And the more that we just make these blanket statements of like, okay, so like the male sexual experience is like this mm-hmm. and the female sexual experience is like this. It just makes it harder when you get into a room with someone and you realize that's not true. There's right. like so much subtlety and nuance to like a new partner and like everybody is so different. Um, so yeah, that was the thing that kind of surprised me was that in particular straight men saying that they related to these women but also I felt with queer men told me that they related as well. And that made me think, you know, there's this kind of kinship between women and queer men that were both like marginalized sexually. Mm -hmm. Um, And given 
kind of bizarre ideas about like who we're supposed to be as sexual beings by society. So there's like an interesting parallel there. But yeah, that's that's a whole other. Maybe there's a follow up. <laughs> yeah, to maybe. Right. Yeah, maybe. Cool. Yeah. Love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come see us. Thank you. It's a lot of fun seeing you again and this beautiful new haircut. Thank you. <laughs> yes. This is great. Can't wait, can't wait to see what happens with Moan. Thank you. Yeah.